You're listening to a podcast by Redeemer Bible Church. Come visit us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. or visit our website at RedeemerFortBend.org for more information. Thanks and enjoy. So a couple of months ago, I was shocked to receive the power bill because it was about twice the cost of our usual monthly expense. The summer heat wave has caused, had caused a, a, an increase in the price. And I had to quickly re, re-examine our consumption of what we were using power on. Electricity is all around us, and it's hard to imagine what life would be like without it. Yet I wonder if the scientists who discovered electricity and built on each other's works, people like Benjamin Franklin and Volta and Ampere and Thomas Edison and Nikola Tesla, I wondered if they truly knew the full extent and implications of their discoveries. Did they think for one moment that the entire world would one day be powered by electricity? Did they imagine that A one-ounce little battery would power a pacemaker that would keep a man or woman alive? Did they fathom that horses and carts would one day be replaced by electric vehicles? I would venture to say no. The discoverers of electricity probably did not fully grasp the full extent and implications of their discovery. If you're new to our church and just joined us this morning... We've been systematically working through the book of Matthew, and we're at the end of chapter 15 today. Last week, we saw Jesus' ministry decisively expand towards the Gentiles. We saw that Jesus' coming brought a new principle, a principle that salvation started with the Jews, but now extends to the Gentiles in equal proportion. But just like those who discovered electricity, the people surrounding Jesus could not grasp the full extent of what that meant. They could not fathom that Jesus indeed had come to die for Jews and Gentiles. They could not appreciate that he was a source of life for both the house of Israel and those who are outside of the house of Israel. They didn't understand that one day Jews and Gentiles would be seated at the same table of God. And this morning, we will see three events that show us how those surrounding Jesus did not really understand the full extent of his ministry. We'll start with the feeding of 4,000, where Jesus performs a miracle that he had done with the Jewish people, but this time with much more focus on the Gentiles. Then we see a confrontation between Jesus and the Pharisees. And finally, we see Jesus rebuke and teach his disciples about the full extent of his ministry. So let's get started in the first part of our sermon. We're all very familiar, I'm sure, with the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, when we studied it a few weeks ago, we saw that it was the only miracle, aside from the resurrection, where all four Gospels mention it. Countless sermons and children's books have been written about the feeding of the 5,000. But sadly, much less has been given to the feed, much less attention has been given to the feeding of the 4,000. This miracle is accounted for in two Gospels, in Mark and Matthew, and we're considering Matthew this morning. And immediately as we begin to read this passage, we're faced with the question of whether there's been some sort of mistake. 
did Matthew really intend to include this miracle? Or did he just get lazy and do a copy and paste to bulk up his narrative? Some people have argued that these accounts are so similar that perhaps the authors were repeating a narrative or a tale just to get a point across. Can these people be right? And if they are right, then what's the point of telling us another closely related miracle? Well, let's read quickly from Matthew chapter 15, verse 32. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I'm unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, where are we to go get enough food, uh, enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, how many loaves do you have? And they said, seven and a few small fish. And directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish. And having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples. And the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who ate were 4,000 men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. So what do we notice about the feeding of the 4,000 that would suggest it's a similar account to the feeding of the 5,000? Well, I have a list of seven things here. Firstly, they, they both took place in the countryside and involved large crowds. After following Jesus for a few days, they were all very hungry and they had run out of food and there were no shops around to buy them. Secondly, the feeding both involved bread and fish, which was very common food in the area, just like we eat rice and beans in the south. Thirdly, Jesus gave thanks for the food, which we would expect him to do. And then he proceeds to multiply the loaves and the fish in a miraculous way. Fourthly, we see the disciples distributing the food in a very systematic manner, which would have been necessary because the crowds were so great. Five, both crowds end up being very satisfied when they had eaten their fill. Six, there were lots and lots of leftovers to be collected after everyone had eaten their fair share. And we're not talking about rations here. Everyone ate first, second servings, third servings, fourth servings till they could eat no more. And finally, we see that after both feedings, there was a boat trip. Jesus decides to escape the crowd and go into the boat for another location in the Sea of Galilee. Now, clearly, there are lots of similarities, but there are also significant differences between the two feedings. Let's examine some of them. Firstly, the locations in each, in, where each miracle takes place is actually very different. Sure enough, they were both by the Sea of Galilee, but the feeding of the 5,000 takes place on the northern shore, while the feeding of the 4,000 takes place on the southeastern shore in the region known as the Decapolis. Now, these details are very important, as we'll see later on. Secondly, the amount of food which Jesus starts with in both situations, again, is very different. In the feeding of the 5,000, he starts with five loaves and two fishes. In the feeding of the 4,000, we were told seven loaves and a few small fishes, exactly how much we don't know. 
And what's more, Mark in this account deliberately switches up the word for fish to differentiate exactly what was happening in both situations. In the feeding of the, the, the 4,000, the, the area in which that miracle takes place actually is well known for small fish like sardines. And that's the word he uses to differentiate the bigger type of fish in the northern shore. Thirdly, we see the disciples pick up fewer fragments in the miracle of the 4,000 than in the 5,000. In the 5,000, they pick up 12 baskets full, while in the 4,000, only seven baskets are taken up. And again, to be clear, it's not because Mark and, and Matthew made a mistake in their math. They even nuanced the type of basket that was used. In the 5,000, we're told they're wicker type of baskets. They're fairly large. And in the, the later miracle on the 4,000, they were reed hampers, kind of like, you know, day trip hampers that you'll pick up. And that's, again, another important detail. But if you're not yet convinced that these are different accounts, perhaps you'll be convinced after you hear how Jesus talks about them. Let's look at chapter 16, verse 9 to 11, which we'll come to in a second. Reading from verse 9, he tells his disciples, Do you not yet perceive, do you, remember the fi- do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Do you see that? Jesus, who performed the miracles, he clearly refers to them as two separate events. He didn't have a brain freeze. It's for this reason that we must regard these two accounts as separate. But so what if it's separate? What's the big deal? Why did Matthew and Mark decide to highlight this difference for us? Well, I think there are a few lessons which are common to the two miracles, and there are lessons which are unique to the miracle of the 4,000. In terms of common lessons, I won't take up too much time because we examined that a few weeks ago, but let me set out three. Firstly, we see that Jesus is tremendously compassionate. Jesus feels for all these lost people, not just for their spiritual blindness, but also for their physical well-being. He doesn't want them to go away hungry, and he knows that there is nothing in the countryside uh, that's open for them to get food from. And so he wants to feed them and to make sure they're looked after before they go. Secondly, Jesus is incredibly powerful. He was able to satisfy the hunger of a very, very large crowd. The disciples were not being frugal and saying, here's a little bit, please pass it on, just enough to, to get you going for the next day. In fact, after the feeding, we're told for days later, people would come just to get a free meal because it was a big meal, right? And of course, they collected an abundance of leftovers after the miracle. And finally, we see that Jesus is the author and sustainer of all life. Both miracles were meant to point us to deeper spiritual truths, that Jesus himself is the source of life and he and only he alone can satisfy our spiritual longings. Beyond these common lessons, I do think that the feeding of the 4,000 is designed to show us something very important, and that is that Jesus came to save the entire world, both Jews and Gentiles, and this is a reinforcement of the lessons that we learned last week. You see, up until this time, the disciples and those who were following Jesus had presumed that his mission was for the house of Israel, that he was to rescue them from tyranny and oppression from the Roman rulers. But we saw last week there is a pronounced shift in the book of Matthew 
which is showing us that God's kingdom is not limited to the Jews, but to the Gentiles. It expands to the Gentiles as well. Now think about the sequence of the passengers, passengers we've considered lately. A few weeks ago, we saw the feeding of the 5,000 on the Jewish side of the Sea of Galilee. We saw the blind healed, the lame uh, that, that got better, the sick was again healed, and everyone coming to them, all again on the Jewish side. Last week, we saw Jesus talking to the Canaanite woman about the house of Israel and, and the Gentiles and how they relate to each other. And then we saw him subsequently performing the very same miracles and healings that he had done with the Jews early in chapter 4. The blind could see again, the lame could walk, the sick were healed, and so forth. But this time with the Gentiles. Now Jesus comes to the region of the Decapolis, which is in the Gentile territory. And he does the same thing that he's done with the Jews this time with the Gentiles. So I think the key reason why Matthew including the, included this account is to tell his readers that the kingdom of God is open to the whole world in equal measure and proportion. Matthew and Mark are developing this, this key plot in their Gospels that Jesus' world-saving mission includes all nations. And we've seen that in last week's uh, sermon. Now, to us living on this side of history, that may not seem like a big deal. So far as I know, everyone here technically is a Gentile. But imagine if you belong to the house of Israel and you've held to this long-held belief that your God belongs exclusively to you. And that's what you grew up with. That's what you've been taught. This is a big shift in that paradigm. And one of the reasons why Jesus was not accepted among the Jews and thank God for his mission. Thank God that Jesus explicitly commanded his disciples to go into all the world and to make disciples of all nations. And thank God that his disciples obeyed because were it not for God's grace and mercy extending to Gentiles, all of us in this room would not be here this morning. Now let's turn to the second point in the sermon, which focuses on Jesus' uh, confrontation with the Pharisees and Sadducees. At this time, notice that Jesus had moved away from the people after feeding them, and he got into the boat and went into the region of Megadon. Now, Megadon is back on the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee, away from the Gentile region. So now Jesus is back into Jewish territory, and the change in scenery signals a shift uh, in the narrative and a shift in the 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 attention that we're meant to have here. And it's here we're going to see two events showing that both Jesus' enemies and his disciples do not yet grasp the purpose of his mission. When Jesus reaches the region, he was immediately confronted by the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And notice here in verse uh, chapter 16, verse 1, that they were not here for a friendly chat. Instead, they were here on a mission, and that mission is to test him. Now, to be clear, they weren't there to debate the merits of each other's theology. Mark uses a stronger term and says that they were there to argue with him. They were there to harass him, and they were in a hostile mood. Now, at first glance, their request for a sign from heaven may seem entirely reasonable. 
After all, we're instructed in the Old Testament that a miraculous sign was needed to authenticate a prophet or someone claiming divine revelation. But here, it's not that they were without proof. In the immediate days before, Jesus had already raised the dead, he had cast out demons, he had healed multitudes upon multitudes of blind, lame, deaf, and sick people. He had also miraculously fed 5,000 people plus men and women on one occasion, and immediately before this event, fed another 4,000 people. So how much more proof did they need? So instead of feeding and stoking their, their games and evil motives, Jesus rebukes them. And he says to them in verses 2, he answered, When it's evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the sign of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. Now, Jesus is pointing out to the fact that they're actually really good at reading signs. They can forecast the weather by merely looking at the sky. And yet, when it comes to Jesus' ministry, they cannot interpret what he's doing. When they see all these signs being done, the, the dead raising from the, uh, and, and coming alive again, the lame walking, the blind seeing, they choose to ignore the most obvious conclusion that you can draw from these signs. Now, a couple of nights ago, I jokingly tested my kids to see if they could discern signs. So I asked them, what happens if daddy comes home after work and he's all quiet and he's looking down and sullen and walks through the door? And one of my daughters cheekily exclaimed, stay away, he's obviously very grumpy. <laughs> well, you see, if a seven-year-old can read signs, so too can these biblical scholars. But it's not just about signs, is it? Rather, it's the Pharisees and Sadducees' own wickedness that is blinding them to the truth. And that's why Jesus explicitly calls out that they are an evil and adulterous generation. Now, if a more reasonable and objective person saw all these healings and miracles and heard all that Jesus taught, they should really conclude that this man is different and he's from God and not from the devil as these people were accusing him of. Moreover, there were tens of thousands of people who could attest uh, to Jesus and, and the perfect life that he was living. They could not point to one single fault. So instead of indulging their desire for more signs, Jesus refers them to the sign of Jonah as the only sign that will be given to them. Now, much has been written about the sign of Jonah, and we don't have time to go in too deep to unpack every bit of it. But I think there are three things here that are wrapped up in this term, the sign of Jonah, that we should know. Firstly, as we saw in our study of Jonah a few months ago, and consistent with what we've been learning in chapters 15 and 16, one aspect of the sign of Jonah is to show God's love and mercy for Gentiles. Now remember, Jonah ran away because he did not want to go to preach the gospel to the Ninevites. Who were the Ninevites? They were the sworn enemy of the house of Israel. They had persecuted Israel and they were clearly undeserving of any grace and mercy. And yet God chose to tell Jonah to go and save them. 
Secondly, Jesus is inviting the Pharisees and Sadducees to compare the impact and power of his ministry versus that of Jonah's. We, we know earlier on in Matthew 12, which we uh, had preached on a few weeks ago, Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, someone greater than Jonah is here. You might recall when we were studying Jonah 3 that he said five mere words to the Ninevites, and they repented. Yet 40 days, Nineveh overthrown. Five words. There were no long discourses or sermons or parables or miracles. He said five words and they repented. Jesus was pointing out that he had done so much more than Jonah had done to authenticate his ministry and to offer people hope and salvation. That if this generation did not believe it, they were not without any excuse and that the generation, uh, the people of Nineveh would come up and accuse them and condemn them. The impact of Jesus' ministry was clearly so much greater than that of Jonah so that the Pharisees and Sadducees were without excuse. And then finally, I think the sign of Jonah is of course a prophetic typology pointing to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He says it himself, again, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And here we know, of course, that Jesus died. He was buried in, in the tomb. And on that third day, he rose again and was seen by thousands and thousands of people after that. By mentioning Jonah, Jesus was deliberately being provocative. His death would lead to the repentance of pagan nations, nations that his Jewish audience despised. But given their hardened hearts, Jesus decides not to engage the Pharisees and Sadducees any further, and instead, he departs from them. So now we move to the third part of our sermon, where we see the disciples clearly also failing to grasp who Jesus really was and what his ministry was about. Now, Jesus and his disciples had started traveling again. And it's rather unfortunate, but his disciples forgot to bring food. Now, again, this is not like Americans traveling on highways where, you know, every two or three miles there, there's a stop, there's a gas station, there's six different dinner restaurants, there's 12 different hotels. You could just find all the conveniences of modern life there. So they forgot to bring food. Now, notice, though, that it's not the disciples who brought up the conversation. Instead, Jesus, not wanting to miss the opportunity, he decides to use it as a teaching moment. And he says to his disciples in verse 6, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, the disciples clearly did not understand Jesus. And they began talking to each other to try and figure it out. Despite all that they've seen in the last days and last few weeks, with the feeding of the 5,000 and the 4,000 they were still very much worried about their physical needs and where their next meal would come from. And so they interpreted Jesus' statement in that light about food. Now, knowing their hearts, Jesus gave them a sharp rebuke. He reminds them about the abundance of leftovers that was gathered when he fed the five and four thousand. He says, 
uh, and we've read this again in, in verse 9, do you not yet perceive, do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it you fail to understand that I am not speaking about bread? Now, Jesus' rebuke may sound harsh, but it was fully warranted. He had just denounced the Pharisees and Sadducees for their demand for signs instead of believing in the wealth of evidence that was already provided. And no doubt the disciples would have been there and heard those sharp words that he had for the Pharisees and Sadducees. And now the disciples themselves were walking very, very close to the same path of unbelief. Notice that Jesus opens by saying, Oh, you of little faith. That is the core of the issue here, their unbelief. The disciples' failure to remember Jesus' feeding was not just about food, but it was more fundamental than that. They clearly have not grasped who Jesus actually is and the purpose of his ministry. And that is why the physical and short-term nature of their focus was really disappointing to Jesus. You see, the disciples should have understood by now, after following Jesus for so many days, after seeing all of his miracles, he is the giver of bread. And not only that, but he himself is the bread of life. Let's just turn very quickly to John's account of the feeding of the 5,000. We're going to go back in time slightly. Turn to John chapter 6 with me if you have your Bibles with you. This is recorded as having happened the day straight after the feeding of the 5,000. So Jesus is consolidating the lessons from that particular miracle for his disciples in this discourse. And we see in verse 32, chapter 6, verse 32, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the bread, true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So the disciples should have by this point some spiritual understanding that not only could Jesus meet all their physical needs, but his mission was of a spiritual nature, to give life to the world. But in contrast to his treatment of the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jesus continues to build his disciples up in compassion and opens their eyes. After rebuking them, Jesus explains to his disciples ex explicitly that he was not talking about food, but about the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees, as we see in verse 12. Now, there are two things we should know about the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Firstly, Jesus tells us it's like leaven. Now, those who practice the art of baking would know what Jesus is in talking about. Leaven is something used in bread to make it rise. Today, we, we use yeast, which is kind of equivalent of the same thing. You only need a tiny bit. You have to measure it really carefully, and it goes about working. Now, my, my wife likes, likes to bake bread, and I remember one night she had put in some yeast, 
uh, and into the dough and set it down to rise. And then off we went and, you know, we chatted, we hung out a little bit. And by the time she had come back, she had been distracted and forgot about the time and had left it a little bit too long. And before you know it, it turned into a big cushion. Now, once the work of leaven begins, there's no turning back, is there? You can't reverse it. No, leaven works unseen and yet quickly and in complete terms. Let me say it again. The work of leaven is unseen and it's quick and it's complete. Before you know it, every part of the dough is pervaded by the leaven and you can't undo that process. And so it is with the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Their influence and mindset may not be evident right at the start, but it's pervasive. It will spread very quickly and it will spread completely. So that if you're not aware of it at the beginning and you're not watching out for it to prevent it from being added to the dough, then it will be too late by the time you realize it's there. Jesus is warning his disciples to be on guard against the sinister and pervasive influence of the Pharisees. A little bit of that teaching will radically change everything that it's mixed with. And so we are to be very careful about it. What's well, our second point? What exactly is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? As I alluded to earlier, the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees were essentially one of unbelief. That's why Jesus also gives the warning, O you of little faith. The Pharisees and Sadducees, you see, weren't really the best of friends. They actually had conflicting theologies so that there is no codified teaching that you can't, can just go and look up. You can't go to Google and get a definition uh, outright of what is the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees because they actually had very, very different theologies on a technical level. But you might recall, on the one hand, uh, when we talked about the Pharisees a couple of weeks ago, we saw that they were a Jewish group that laid the foundation of what would essentially become uh, rabbinic Judaism. They emphasized an oral tradition, and they argued that was equal in weight as the Torah. They had a very complicated set of traditions and practices that was designed to bring about outward piety. But at the same time, they were also very hypocritical. They burdened the common people with all these different rules, but also created a bunch of exceptions for themselves. So the Pharisees were essentially legalistic folks who tried to buy their way to God's favor through their good works, which essentially is a form of unbelief. On the other hand, you have the Sadducees who controlled the temple and they had a very cozy relationship with their Roman rulers. They were a group comprised of the high priests as well as the aristocratic families in society. They enjoyed all kinds of political and societal benefits provided by the, the, the Romans and they were known for the Hellenistic practices and adopting the, those. In short, the, the Sadducees were very, very worldly they wanted to keep the whole corrupt system intact. Otherwise, they would lose the temple income, they would lose political favor, they would lose the very good indulgent life that they had. And so they would reject the message of the gospel and the mission of Jesus no matter what cost, which again is unbelief. And so despite these differences, the Pharisees and Sadducees were unified in their unbelief that Jesus was the Son of God and had come to save both Jews and Gentiles. They would resist him as much as possible. 
And this is what Jesus was warning about when he said to his disciples, beware of the teachings of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He wants them to be aware of what unbelief looks like. Now, this leads us to a few points of application here. I think there are three things that we should think about and draw on this morning. Firstly, I must ask you this. How do you relate to Jesus this morning? Is he your personal Lord and Savior? Or are you still seeking for some sign or validation that he really is the Son of God? Friends, Jesus has already provided us with a lifetime of signs. Not only are his miracles and teachings recorded for us, his death and resurrection testify that he is the Son of God. We have the Bible, the Word of God, that contains all that you need for matters of faith and salvation. Friends, if this morning you have not bowed your knee and acknowledged the Lordship of Jesus Christ over your life, it's not because of a lack of signs. Let's be honest about it. And it's not because you don't know how to interpret the signs. It's because you've hardened your hearts and you don't want him to rule over you. Perhaps you're like the Pharisees and confident that God will accept you for all the good things that you've done in this life. You go to church on Easter, you've been baptized when you were a child, from time to time you give money to the panhandler that stops by the traffic light. What to you the word of God says, all your righteous deeds are like a filthy rag. Or perhaps you're like the Pharisee, uh, Sadducees, you've set up a complete system of idols and comforts in your life. You don't even have time to think about spiritual things. You'll think about spiritual things once a week when you come to church. You have hidden sins in your life that no one else knows about, and you don't want to surrender it to him. You realize that Jesus' command to take up your cross will truly cost you. And to you, the word of God says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Unbelieving friends, be warned that the gospel message will not be available forever. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, Behold, now is the favorable time. Not another time. Now. Now is the day of salvation. Please don't imagine that God's grace and mercy is infinite. One day, and we don't know when that day will arrive, God will say enough is enough. There will be no more opportunities for redemption or repentance. He will walk away from you, just like he walked away from the Pharisees and Sadducees. So today, as it says in Hebrews chapter 3, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Turn to him. Throw yourself at his mercy. He has already given you his son to die for your sins, and he's willing to forgive if you would turn to him in repentance and faith. And if you have not yet turned to him, but would like to do so, then please come and speak with Ben or myself after this. We would love to talk to you. Our second point of application is that unbelief is tremendously dangerous and we are to avoid it at all costs. We are to be ruthless with unbelief, with anything that would seek to deny that Jesus is the Son of God, that would deny that he was born of the Virgin Mary, that would deny that he was crucified and died and was buried, that would deny that he rose again from the dead and ascended to heaven, that denies that he is now seated at the right hand of God the Father, and that denies that he will one day come 
to judge both the living and the dead. If you're meddling with anyone or anything that would seek to draw your, your walk away from Christ and into unbelief, I urge you, flee from it. As 1 Corinthians chapter 15 tells us, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Now finally, to those who are followers of Christ, we should care about the lost, shouldn't we? Because Jesus cared about the lost. Jesus' mission was to save the world, both Jews and Gentiles, in equal proportion and measure. Thankfully, he did not stop at the feeding of the 4,000. He continued by going to the cross, dying for our sins, and rising again on that third day. And not only that, he took pains to instruct his disciples to continue his mission here on earth by making disciples of all nations. And that command continues to apply to all those who would call him Lord and Savior. So for those who are believers, let us remember to take the gospel and Jesus' command and obey him in evangelism. After all, this is the heart and soul of Jesus' mission and ministry. Let's pray.